Alright, so uh, this podcast does contain themes of murder and things of that nature. So if you don't like murder or crime or disappearances or anything like that, then you should probably uh, go and pick up something else. It was in early November of 1997 that a series of very strange sessions led a child psychologist in Maine to contact the authorities. It began when a patient of his began to tell him about one of their friends. This friend being imaginary as far as both the psychiatrist and the boy's parents were concerned, he called his friend Mr. Smile and would talk about him at great length during some sessions. The boy called him Mr. Smile both because he was always smiling and because when he was around the boy said he felt happy. He said there was a feeling of everything being okay. The boy in question was being treated for serious issues to do with anger and depression, but when Mr. Smile was around, he said that all the anger and sadness seemed to just disappear. He said that Mr. Smile wouldn't speak but rather just stand there at the foot of his bed. He smelled like candy floss and just by being there, he made the boy feel calm and safe. The psychiatrist assumed this imaginary friend was some sort of coping mechanism the boy had developed to deal with problems at home and had led his violent temper and thought nothing much of it. Until another patient. A girl of about nine years old also began talking about her imaginary friend, Mr. Smile. And then a boy of seven. And then a boy of twelve and then a girl of eleven. All in all close to fifteen separate patients all begin to talk to him about Mr. Smile. The first few he'd put down to coincidence, after all. Many children have imaginary friends, and the name and description of Mr. Smile was just generic enough that it didn't seem to concern him too much at first. But as more and more patients told him about Mr. Smile, he began to grow concerned. He asked for more details. Every single one of them described him the same way, using the exact same words. Now, there was no way that all of these children could be in contact with each other. Five of them, for instance, were currently being homeschooled and according to their parents when he spoke to them, never really even left the house except when it was to accompany them on shopping trips and the like. There was no way that every single one of these kids could have rehearsed or prepared their statements together, which led him to a deeply disturbing conclusion. He spoke privately with each of the parents one at a time. He avoided disclosing too much information, but told them that something troubling had cropped up in multiple sessions with various patients, and he believed that there was a chance their child was at risk. He asked for their permission to discuss matters with the authorities and the parents gave their consent, provided they were kept in the loop as to what was going on. And so, over the course of the next week, the police came and talked to the children about their friend. They asked for details about his appearance, which they couldn't seem to describe apart from the smile and that he was not like them. 
how he got into their house, anything he did or said while he was there. Because by this point, the psychiatrist, the parents, and the police were all convinced that Mr. Smile was quite real and quite dangerous. The authorities had checked to make sure that there was no known predators living in the area, which they had confirmed was not the case. But it was quite clear that whoever this Mr. Smile was, he was a real person who had been sneaking into homes of these children at night. None of the children claimed to know how he got in. They said they would just wake up and he'd be there at the foot of their bed. Sometimes they would say he would be singing something but not in English. It sounded like a lullaby, they said. It made them feel safe. Finally, the children were asked to draw Mr. Smile as they couldn't put into words how he looked. Each and every one of the children picked up a red crayon and proceeded to colour in the entire page until it was just a rectangle of red. When he asked about this, they insisted that they had drawn Mr. Smile. When asked where his head, arms and legs were, they just insisted that they had drawn those. They claimed that they had drawn a perfect picture of the man at the foot of their bed. And when they were told that they had simply coloured in the page and not drawn anything at all, they became deeply angry, feeling that they were being accused of lying and insisting that what they had drawn was a picture of the man they had seen. Acting more on hunch than anything else, the psychiatrist decided to show one of the coloured rectangles to the various children and ask them what it was. Each and every one of them, with no knowledge of what the picture was supposed to be or who had drawn it, and with no knowledge that the other children that had been spoken to about the subject even existed, replied that it was a picture of Mr. Smile. Cameras and baby monitors were placed in the children's room so that they could be monitored. Many of the parents simply stopped sleeping altogether staying up all night, staring at the screens that displayed where their children slept. At no point did anyone enter or exit their bedrooms. No sounds except for them snoring or occasionally talking in their sleep were overheard over the baby monitors. There was no sign of Mr. Smile. After almost two weeks of this, many of them began to doubt that Mr. Smile had ever existed. Other psychiatrists since have put the whole thing down to some strange shared delusion that while it couldn't be explained, yet did not have any basis in reality. Some suggested that maybe this whole Mr. Smile thing had its basis in a TV show or film that the children had all watched, leading them to dream up something similar. Then one of the boys went missing. The camera in his room had gone dead at around two in the morning. His mother had run to check in on him, only to find his room empty. It had literally taken her less than a minute to run to his room. There was no possible way for him to leave or be taken and be out of her sight in the time it took for her to leave her bedroom and run towards his. But he was gone. She said there was a smell like cotton candy in the room. 
The search for the boy turned up nothing. No one had seen anything strange or unusual around the home before or during the disappearance, and no trace of him was ever found. It was less than a week later that one of the girls who had spoken of Mr. Smile vanished as well. Then another. Then another of the boys. One by one, each of them began to disappear, until only four remained. The four remaining children began to talk about how Mr. Smile and his friends were going to take them away soon. When asked about these friends, they talked about how Mr. Smile lived with other smiling men in the happy place, and that he would take them there soon. They said there were lots of people there already, and that in the happy place everything was beautiful. They said that they knew about it because Mr. Smile talked to them in their heads, because he couldn't talk like other people did, and that he would show them pictures in their heads of the place they were going. Things began to get increasingly disturbing. After a few weeks, the children began complaining of headaches and nausea. Their schools reported that they had begun to suffer hallucinations, and two of them started complaining that they didn't like the place that Mr. Smile was showing them anymore. One began screaming for half an hour, acting as if they were having a fit and screaming for the colours to stop. That the colours were horrible and that they needed them to go away. One of the children claimed that Mr. Smile was talking to them in their head all the time now and was telling them things, terrible things. But they couldn't talk about it, that they mustn't because their parents would know about the terrible things too. The psychiatrist asked them to write down what Mr. Smile was saying, promising that he would show it to no one. Managing to gain the trust of one of the boys enough that he agreed, the contents of the book are known only to him and the authorities, but when anyone else involved has been asked about it, they just get real quiet and they find an excuse to change the subject. The children stopped sleeping. Footage from the security cameras showed them sitting bolt upright, their eyes unblinking, and staring at the wall without moving or making a sound. Sedatives did nothing. One of the girls began cutting strange circular marks into her skin, while two of the boys ceased communicating in English altogether. The language they spoke was never identified, and despite numerous people being asked to listen to them, they could not translate what they were saying. By the start of 1999, all of the four children had vanished into thin air. There was no trace of who took them. Searches had turned up nothing to this day, with no indication of where they are, or if they're even dead or alive. No suspects have ever been found either. All four of them appeared to simply vanish into thin air, much like the others, all of whom remain missing, their disappearances unexplained. Far beyond the reaches of our Earth, Amongst the eternal ether of the cosmos, lasts beings of true power and magnitude, 
who lay beyond the comprehension of our minds. Beings that shape and warp the fabric of space and distort the reality in which we live. To gaze upon their eyes is to gaze upon the eyes of infinity. To describe their figure is to describe the universe. To witness their power is to witness the power of the cosmos. I was but only a young man when I was first stricken with the devilish fever that had previously claimed my family. I was to be considered lucky, as the great plague of bloodletting did not bring about my end. It was only the insanity and fear of the cosmos that came with it that ailed me, and that insanity ails me to this very day. To my kin, the true fever and pain of the plague would be their end. My mother was the first to go. She had sliced her wrists in a fit of hysterical madness while my sister and I were away at school. It was my father who found her, falling to her body in a futile struggle that some divine interaction would bring them back together. As it turned out, that divine interaction would simply be the contact of my mother's tainted blood. On the night that my father expired, the swelling of blood to his brain caused what I had first believed to be delusions, visions of the great cosmic and ethereal horrors, fearing their awesome power over the mind of man. He too took to the blade, ending his life face down in a pool of plagued blood. My sister was awoken by his fit of insanity and treaded barefoot into his room. But before the light of her candle could illuminate the void of the room, her feet felt the blood and she knew. I was the only one who could care for my sister, as we had no other family. Having turned fourteen the month prior, my sister was a small, frail child, who could be frightened merely by the sight of her own shadow. She did not last as long as my mother or father, who fought the plague for nearly a week. My sister hardly lasted beyond the third day, and a part of me wishes I never witnessed the fourth. I shall refrain from describing how my sister passed, as the brutality and gore of the event left me in such a fragile mind that I was admitted to the Providence Asylum of the Insane. It was here that I first began to experience the true nature of the universe and its unforgiving forces. As I mentioned, I was stricken with fits of madness and insanity, but not by the plague. If such were the case, I believe this manuscript would not be here, to unleash the knowledge of the horrors that it holds. It was during the first month of my attendance into the hospital that I met an artist by the name of Joseph B. Wilcox. I never learned the reason that Joseph too was admitted to the hospital. 
only that he felt the need to be there to protect someone, be it himself or family. He was a tall, skinny fellow, a neatly cut head of brown hair, and a pair of delicate blue eyes. His hands were soft and slender, like that of a woman's, a clear sign that he preferred the intellectual arts of painting and clay sculpting over the more physical and manual labours of other men of his age. We became quick friends, realising that we were the more stable bunch within the hospital. Joseph would tell stories of life in the small village outside of Providence, whose names escaped my thought, and would often gift me with small sketches to decorate the drab and numbing room in which I stayed. I would tell stories of working in the family shop behind the counter to help reach the jars of sweets that neither my mother or sister could reach, or of the kind old woman who often came to purchase candles and soaps, and how she would always find my youthful exuberance a charming quality I should not let go of so easily. Twas the night of March 8th when Joseph entered my room, his footsteps slow and monotonous as he crept to my bedside. I did not hear him enter. I only felt as he laid one of his feminine hands on my arm and shook me. When I awoke to see him standing over me, I shot up, frightened by the scarred and blood-stained face that stood before me. In his madness, Joseph had crafted a shiv from his bed frame and carved queer sigils along his face and arms. His eyes were bloodshot and his mouth curled into a sinister smile. He placed the shiv on my lap and laid his hand on my shoulder, whispering some sort of terrible mantra into my ear. His hand drifted to the shiv, and he beckoned me to join him in a paradise lost a millennium ago. Blood drained from my face as I felt my arms grow cold, as I witnessed a wretched abyss manifest beyond him. And what seemed like that which is beyond the normal world. A rush of hatred and anger overtook me as I plunged the shiv into his gut, the gargled and raspy voice of my once friend slowly fading as he fell limp onto the moulded and rotting floor. Fear overtook as I was terrified to remove my eyes off the body before me. When I finally broke the trance and looked up, the asylum of which I was confined had warped and twisted into a vista of blackened skies and grey earth below me. Above the vast purgatory that I stood floated a being that still haunts me in my thoughts and memories of it, and maddens me in my dreams of it, swirling, churning, gurgling, and writhing like a mass of blackened earthworms in a rotting corpse, was a demon sultan, who repugnantly controlled the skies and the cosmos as one. I was amongst a land of predators, and I was not worthy enough to even be thought of as prey. I felt as the frail mind of mine shattered, my eyes rotting from the sight of such eldritch terror that no man would ever know. 
The wardens found Joseph's body and the shiv under my cot. And there was no fighting what was already apparent. The horrors I witnessed remained with me in life. And when my body shall soon convulse in the noose placed around my wretched throat by the hangman, so too shall the horrors assault me in death. For earth is not our home. Our earth is merely an asylum of the fragile-minded who are too weak to gaze upon the awesome terror and power of the universe. Death for many. It is a concept to be feared, to be respected. It is the ender of relationships, of knowledge, of everything that you were and will have ever been. They see it as nothing but a monster. The blades ready at a moment's notice to cut clean through the fragile string you call your life. For others, it is but the next great step in the journey of existence. When it is time for them to shed their physical bond with the world, they do so gladly and without hesitation. They know not what waits beyond, but hope that there is yet more to discover, to experience, to explore. They are happy to go on. Some simply consider it an escape, a way to flee from pain of living, the hurt that comes from simply being alive. When life becomes too much to bear, they welcome the embrace of death, regardless of what may follow after. For them, they do not care about meeting it prematurely, or if there is more, they only desire for their suffering to cease. The one thing that all agree upon is that death is a universal truth. Just as every being has a beginning, there must also come an end. Everyone prepares for it in different ways, but the result is always the same, no matter the person, no matter the status, no matter your wealth, riches, family, friends. Everyone finds themselves in the ground one day. But what if that weren't true? Let us consider the fantastic. If we were to delve into the realm of imagination and say perhaps that you were undying, what would the ramifications be? Well, there are two aspects to consider, physical and mental. Let us assume for a moment that even if you weren't to die, your body would still be susceptible to aging, to disease, to lacerations, if you were to continue aging far beyond your limits of our programmed destruction, life would quickly become a living hell. Your body would degrade, becoming weaker and weaker with each passing day. Eventually, if it hadn't happened already, you'd no longer be able to walk as your muscles and bones would have become far too fragile to support your weight. Soon, you wouldn't be able to move at all lest you tear your body apart, and once your eyes were used up and dry, the world would turn black to them, as well as the rest of your senses in due time. Imagine a fate such as that, paralyzed, 
blind and deaf to reality, but alive. A mass of disintegrated bone and flesh, maybe no more than a puddle of soupy tissue, but yes, alive. Not so extravagant a thought, is it? Or maybe, earlier on in your eternal life, you found yourself struck down with a disease of some kind, maybe cancer. While many others have failed to beat it, you wouldn't. However, perhaps you wouldn't quite succeed either. It is possible to assume that without proper and timely treatment, you'd simply be stuck in a stalemate with it for the rest of your life, which in your case is a long while. Imagine the pain that others go through in the last few moments of their life, where many people are ever eager for their death to arrive, for an end to the suffering, a torture so great it forces people to beg for the sweet release of life leaving their bodies. But that isn't an available option to you, is it? No, you'll simply be left to your torment as the tumours continually grow, pressing hard against your bones, your nerves, your muscles, enveloping everything inside you. Who knows what will happen given enough time? No one before you has lived long enough to see. And finally, what if you were wounded? What if you were tortured? If they cut your limbs apart and just left you there, because they have a guarantee you won't die. What if they removed your skin, inch by inch, until you were nothing but bloody muscle and tendon underneath, where even the lightest of touches would send cascading waves of pain throughout your vessel, but not kill you? That is what you face on a physical aspect. If you were to become invulnerable to death, but now we must move on to the mental consequences. Let us ignore all of what has been stated so far and imagine that you're a perfectly healthy individual. No sickness and no aging. For 50 years or so, you might feel very confident about your choice. But what happens when your family starts to die? Your parents may be expected, but your siblings? What of your best friends? Having to watch each one's last breath clasp each hand as their strength leaves them. How many funerals would you have to attend when everyone you have ever known and loved has died? How would you maintain a family? If you were to bear children with your wife or husband, how would that impact your relationship? As you continue to age and grow older, as you stay the same, a single moment of your life frozen in time forever, Eventually, your children would surpass you, and not only would you witness the death of your significant other, but it would be your children whose hands you must hold as they travel into the next realm, and then your grandchildren, and then their children, and so forth. It's alright, you'll start over in a few decades, you'll be able to move on, to leave and start a different bloodline than the one you've now abandoned and then you'll have to undergo the same process again. Losing your love, 
then your children, and over and over with each new glimmer of hope, you gain to lead a normal life. They say there's no greater punishment than having to bury one of your own children. Well, you'll have to bury them all. Maybe you'll grow wise and distance yourself from humanity before you go insane from the mental stress that's simply existing places on your mind. That's only a temporary solution. Unfortunately, everything is when you can't die. When the earth falls into the sun in billions of years and the sun burns itself out of existence, what then is left? You'd still be there, the one constant in the entirety of the universe, floating through dust and ghosts of your solar system throughout the dark void of space. No oxygen, no heat, and no company. Completely alone for the rest of eternity. When the universe finally dies, will that be the end of you? Will it finally be your time? Or will you be forced to still linger on, witnessing reality as it was never meant to be seen? Such is the gift of mortality. Everyone, at some point in their life, asks themselves, what would it be like to live forever? That's not the question they should be asking. The true question you should ask yourself is this. What happens when an immortal wants to die?